Welcome to Not So Standard Deviations. This is episode 43. I'm Roger Pang, and I'm here with Hillary Parker. Um, this podcast is supported by uh, listeners like you, and, and one of the things we've been trying to do uh, recently is to call out a listener in each episode and to thank them for supporting us on Patreon. Um, and so, Hillary, who do we have today? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, can I point out um, how NPR you sound? That was really impressive. Um, Really? I was okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was think tra- I, was I think you just it. have NPR running through your veins. You don't even realize you're doing it. Um, <laughs> I have a genetic predisposition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You do have the right. Yeah, you're a you're a you're natural. Um, so yeah, today we want to um, give a warm shout out to Joe Blitzstein. Um, and Joe's been a supporter, one of our very first supporters, um, been a supporter for a long time, and he's um, a professor at the Harvard Statistics Department. So um, he's super interesting on Twitter, highly recommend um, following him. And yeah, thank you, Joe. And as always, uh, we do shout outs for listeners at any level. Um, we choose one person a week. And then if you subscribe at the $2 level, you get a Not-So-Standard Deviations hex sticker um, and a handwritten note from me. And then at the $3 level, you get uh, access to our outtakes, which at this point is 99% talking about landline technology and our various headaches with recording this podcast generally. So, <laughs> One day we will solve connectivity. We will, but... Not today. <laughs> all right, but thanks for again for all of our to all of our listeners for supporting us and making this podcast. Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been been very humbling, so we really appreciate it. Um, so, uh, do you want to? What do you want to talk about? <laughs> I know. <laughs> this is a pretty long list. I, <laughs> I know. Well, first, I feel like maybe we should start by you explaining that you are going to be on the other side of the world for what six months, a year. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, I should maybe I should yeah. So <laughs> I, I don't know how to introduce this topic. I guess the the way um, I guess the only way to say it is that I'm gonna I'm gonna be going on sabbatical um, in uh, in Australia in Melbourne, and it's uh, so cool. I'm gonna be visiting Monash University and uh, in their statistics department there, and I will be there for almost a year. That's I'd say. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we haven't I haven't gotten the return ticket yet, so I don't know exactly how long, <laughs> but, um, but it'll be on the order of a year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we're packing up the house, moving the whole family. It's gonna be a, a thing. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. How old is your son? He's seven. So. Um, yeah. So he'll like remember this and. I hope so. Yeah, that was part of the calculation. I mean, because like if he was younger, he might not remember it, and when he's older, it's it's a little more of a complicated, you know. So. Right. Yeah. My parents did this, like we moved to Boston, but I was only a year and a half old. Uh, and so it, it was not, it my mom had like a year and a half position at Wellesley. And so, and my dad took, essentially like took leave from his law firm and we moved the family, but I don't remember any of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, it's so sad because my brother was older. He's four years older. So he remembers it. So like, Growing up, my family would be like, don't you remember in Boston? And I'd always be like, no. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah, the right age. Yeah. That being said, I also, yeah, I also moved abroad with my mom on sabbatical when I was 16. And that was also a good year to do it. So, you know. Where was that? But it was was complicated. To Paris. Okay. Um, So moving to Paris when you're 16 is like 
pretty nice yeah <laughs> all right well I'll, I'll have like 10 years to think about that <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah is that how often you get sabbaticals it's a little no i mean it's a little bit kind of fluid here in terms of sabbaticals because frankly most people don't ever take sabbaticals <laughs> mm-hmm. um and because uh, just the way that our system works and i think um so it's kind of like you just kind of have to work it out with your chair and you know kind of figure out how it's going to work but otherwise it's not like it's not like in, in like arts and science in schools where it's like every seven years you definitely get one you know yeah right so okay that makes sense yeah, I mean, there's people here who have gone thir- 30 years without a sabbatical, you know, so. <laughs> so, yeah, we should discuss the implications for the podcast, because I'm sure everyone's really worried. Yeah. Well, so the podcast, I, I, my presumption is the podcast is not going on sabbatical. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. And we will figure out, I think we've we've done some very cursory discussions of times that may work. But at right. the end of the day, like 12, unless I'm just totally thinking about this wrong like the biggest gap you have is 12 hours right because then that's like the farthest two times could be from each other <laughs> that's right yeah I, depending on which which way you decide to do the calculation yeah exactly so, so like the 8 a.m 8 p.m is always possible <laughs> so we'll just <laughs> yeah. we'll figure out we'll figure it out but it'll we'll, we will continue we will continue onwards with the podcast so yeah, yeah, yeah. Hillary may need to wake up at some odd, god, ungodly hour to do it, that, but we'll make it happen. Or Roger, <laughs> Mostly Roger, wake up. <laughs> to be determined. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, or I'll have to stay up to some very late hour. I'm but. fine staying up late, so I'm just, you know, being generous here. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> I see. I, I, I can see that we're already negotiating yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but that's super exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a book um, on my based on my advanced uh, statistical computing course that I teach here, um, and uh, I'm gonna work with Di Cook there. Uh, she's at Monash, and Rob Hindman's there. Um, and so um, anyway, they have a great department there, and I'm looking forward to you know this other schools in Australia too. So I'll probably do some traveling and um, yeah. Well, yeah, I think we'll have fun. to report. You'll have to. Describe your travels on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we'll change it to like a travel, you know, blog or something, travel podcast. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I'm okay with that. <laughs> it's worth saying that this is our last episode, quote unquote, in the United States, <laughs> even though it's not, we're not together. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and just as a, as a note to people, while Roger is, you know, traversing the globe, we were, we were going to have one uh, re-airing of a vintage favorite episode <laughs> in the meantime uh, to let Roger get settled before we pick up recording again. Yeah, that was that was a good way to say rerun. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll need a little time to figure things out and then we will hopefully pick it up before too long. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, actually, so you discussing that book... Uh, is a good segue into your epic tweet storm, as the kids call it, on oh. <laughs> on teaching R and sort of the history. And this was all inspired by um, David Robinson's long anticipated blog post of teach the tidyverse before base R. Um, right. And I thought 
everyone, I mean, I really enjoyed your perspective and it's worth going into here, like describing in more than 140 character chunks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like what, yeah, what you were thinking. Yeah, no, I think um, it was kind of absurd at the end of the day because I had to write it. I wrote it all out first and then I like chopped it into little tweets and I'm like, why am I doing, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've discussed I should have just this. written the blog post. Twitter's the medium people use, like, despite it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I really, I like David's post um, because I think it really, um, it was like, it was the kind of post that, ha- that like, I think could only occur now is what I'm saying, I think. Yeah. Um, because all of the pieces are, like, finally in place, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought about it a lot and I, and I kind of, because I, you know, I ask myself, like, why do I teach R the way that I have in the past? And it's the way that I've taught it previously in, like, my course here at Hopkins, probably the way that, you know, I taught it. I don't know. I can't, you took my course, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We start, first day was good, I believe, if I recall correctly. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, it's the way that I did it in my Coursera course. You know, it's like where you start from, like, kind of like the nitty gritty kind of programmy type of aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, like we talk about operators and we talk about data types and we talk about, you know, classes and, and, uh, and control structures and, you know, and you kind of like from the programming aspect of it, and then you kind of work your way up to like, here's how you like analyze or read in a data set or something like that. Right. It's usually by like the third or fourth lecture that I'm like reading in data. And, um, and I kind of asked, cause I, you know, I started this way, like, you know, it was like a decade ago that I restarted this class and I couldn't really remember like how it ended up that way. And, um, but it occurred to me that like, you kind of had to, you always, in regardless of how you tried to start teaching R, you always ended up doing that kind of crap because like you had to, (laughs) it was like, (laughs) you would like, you know, if you were like, imagine no tidyverse, right? Like if you wanted to take the mean of a variable within groups of another variable, right? Like that is a straight up group by summarize operation, right? Yeah. Yeah. But if you wanted to do that before, like just in base R, right, uh, you could use like the aggregate function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in order, or the t apply function. But in order to do that, you'd have to like subset out the column that you wanted to group by from the data frame, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then how do you how do you subset out the column? Well, you have to use like the dollar sign operator to subset out the column, right? Yeah. But then, but what's that, right? <laughs> <laughs> And then you're already fallen down like this long hole, this deep hole, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. If you want to subset out, if you want to like take a subset of rows uh, from a data frame, uh, well, in that case, you could use the subset function. But if you didn't use the subset function, you have to use like the bracket operator. Well, what's that? Why are you yeah. using the bracket operator? What's one bracket versus two brackets? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like you always ended up falling down this hole of like operators and data types. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I have such a strong memory of the yeah like creating like the way I would filter before the tidyverse of like oh like data frame brackets like data frame dollar sign column equals equals like true or something you know like that whole logic um, which it requires you to understand the like creating the true false indicators and what it means to apply that to a row or like what it means to index on that. And it, it's just like, it, yeah, like you said, it's a lot of understanding the nitty gritty. Right. It was just, there was no way to abstract out those low level details. Yeah. Um, before, and I think the tidyverse does almost all of it. Like you still have to know kind of like what a logical operation is because 
that's how you filter things. Um, but you, you can know it at a higher level, I think. Um, and, but like, there was no way to like, to work with data in base R without understanding operators, uh, and like data types basically. Um, and so you kind of ended up teaching that anyway. And so I felt like, so a part of me was like, okay, in, the, in those days, you just taught, you try to get that stuff out of the way and let them see it at least once. And then when you get caught in that net later on, when you're analyzing data, you'd be like, oh, remember when we saw factors? Okay, let's have a review, you know? Um, and so it's, but like now I think things have changed enough that like there, you can afford a different approach um, uh, to teaching are in general i think yeah and worth noting that that was i mean i think hadley chimed in that that was essentially the explicit goal of dplyr was to like get people doing basic things without like within a, the first day of using r right yeah and i think that I, that's why i think i think dplyr and 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 related functions um are were are, are like order of magnitude more influential and important than like say something like ggplot which i think has a different impact but it did not impact i think as much like the teaching of r on day one mm -hmm. right exactly because i think being able to do like simple manipulations and like summaries with dplyr and friends um is is huge i think uh in r and ironically is something that was like trivial to do in like every other statistics package basically right <laughs> you know? yeah yeah and maybe more importantly like in bi software yeah, yeah. And in like SQL. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because a lot of the other software packages like SAS and, and whatnot were kind of organized around the, like a database type of logic, you know. Um, so, but the, the other point I wanted to make in that whole 25 tweet, tweet store um, was that, you know, the, the context of like where R emerged was very much like we have these packages, SAS and Stata and whatnot. And so they're, and they're all great. Right, and so why would we use this rinky-dink open-source programming language that we don't know if anyone's going to support next year, and uh, and like it doesn't and you know doesn't have half the capabilities that SAS has to like summarize data or transform, manipulate data, things like that, right? And so, and the the logic was always okay. Yes, you're right, but we have this programming language that you can use to like build stuff right and we have pack the package mechanism and then later on there's this huge community you know and um and so and so the so the edge the or the the the, the i guess you know <laughs> to use the language of your of your coast you know the value proposition um <laughs> is uh is the language right it's the programming aspect of it uh and uh and so i think that's why like it took so long for something like the tidyverse to even evolve because uh, it, it in some sense like we didn't it wasn't a priority because we want it had to in order to sell R you had to sell the other stuff you know um, and not the ability to take like means within a group <laughs> yeah you know? yeah no I think it's a really good point because again like from our last episode and talking about the DevOps world I think it was a similar evolution where that first paradigm shift of like you want to create these scripts rather than you know like the idea that you would be using essentially a programming approach to solve what used to not be a programming approach was like a radical change and now right. we're at the point where people take that for granted and it happened pretty quickly even um but 
it, it, so to me, that actually makes perfect sense that it's like, of course, the, like you said, the value proposition was so different then than it is now. And now the value proposition is much more around like efficiency and reproducibility and the idea of productionizing results and like getting people on board with like the more continuous pipelines of analysis. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just a very different world right now. And I think, you know, people like me uh, who were around in the earlier days, we just take longer to kind of like convert over. Whereas people who are learning R now are like, I don't understand like why you did it this other way. Right. Yeah. Um, Well, that's what's kind of almost sad about it is that this is like, you know, it took years and years to get here. And now we're in like the golden era. (laughs) I mean, maybe not, but that's sort of what it feels like. You know, it's like this is like this built to such an interesting place, but then you get into these like base R versus not discussions where it, you know, it's like, it doesn't, it's like a shame that people can't feel good about like, oh, we got to this great place where now people are able to think really nuanced in a nuanced way about like tiny parts of the problem that we would have never even thought capable of addressing in these older systems. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think I don't know. It's kind of like you know when you're in the revolution, you're always, it's always us versus them, you know. But then like once you win, it's like it's a totally different thing, you know. Yeah, you have to find like someone else to be against. Right. Exactly. Right. Totally. Totally see what you're saying there. Well, usually, you know, when the revolutionaries win, like and like they go into power, like all the people who were in the revolution are out, basically. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a they're, really they're, good They're point. not in the government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's that's. I think we should expand on that possibly in a later podcast so we can do some research. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the ouster of the current reigning party is going to be. Then you know, like what who, what's going to be the next revolution? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think well, one way to think about this, I think, is like you know, it's kind of like moving up the ladder. You know, so like if the bottom rung of the ladder is like base R. And like this programming in this kind of like base this basically the fundamentals of this programming language right and i think the tidyverse and friends you know take us one rung up the ladder right it builds on all that stuff and it gives us a new baseline right um and then so the question now is like what's going to step on top of that and like you and it, basically what's going to take the tidyverse for granted um and 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 then and be the next rung in the ladder um that and it will depend a lot i think on just kind of what needs to be done and what the people using R need to get done. You know, I yeah. Think. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly what that is really. Um, I don't know who, I mean, it might be mach- machine learning. It might be AI. It might, who knows? Right. I mean, I just, so I, I have two thoughts on this, which is one for whatever reason this week, I, I like I I had this funny week where I tried to make things happen in one direction and like they wouldn't work in that direction but then something else would happen somewhere else that actually solved my problem and like I was laughing with a friend that it you know we were talking about someone who approaches problems really different than us but like ends up in the same place and we were like yeah it's like he sees the world as like an Escher painting you know it's like like we're just like walking upstairs and we're like he's going the wrong direction but somehow he like ends up in, at the top of the stairs and it's like oh right because he like you know like went around and so I think the ladder analogy is right except for that there's like it's like the Escher painting of ladders <laughs> like going in all the do you see what I mean because and and that's the thing it's like people might be looking at something like that's in the wrong direction and it may be genuinely in the wrong direction 
And I certainly have opinions of things that are going in the wrong direction, but then some of them might seem like the wrong direction, but then they're actually going to get to the goal in this path you never thought of. And <laughs> do you see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> well, like there's always this period of like chaos, right? Where everyone's kind of doing something. Uh, and then hopefully at some point, someone kind of unifies all the ideas and like, you know, or, or all the good parts and like, and makes a new thing, right? Yeah. Well, so speaking of that, that, kind of dovetails into the one of the topics we were tossing around, which is the um, GG Joy package that like hit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, so the idea here was, um, I, did this all come from Rafa's blog post on Simply Statistics? No, it, it no, no, it was, I don't know how it emerged. I can't, and I, uh, how it came up, but it was before that, before yeah. that blog post. I feel like there was like, somehow this week was the week of Joy Plots, which are they were they always called joy plots or is that just because people got like like cute with the joy division album cover i you know i had never heard that phrase until like jenny bryan like tweeted that package and like so i i, I don't know i i never heard that phrase before yeah so i feel like this <laughs> so yeah the idea is that it's like essentially um sort of I don't even know how to describe it. It's like a mountainscape of uh, histograms that are layered. It's sort of like an implied depth of field of histograms over a distance. Well, so is the <laughs> is the joy is the jo is the like default joy plot 3D? I don't think it's 3D, but I think there is like a depth element to it. Yeah, like it, they are layered, and in that sense. Yeah, so it's not that the histograms are 3D, but yeah, I think that there's an implied, like, Z-axis that is indicator. Yeah. It's a convenient way to kind of compress them into taking up less space, I guess, is, like, is to have them overlapping a little bit, basically. Yeah. It's like a 3D plot, but you're not looking at it. Like, you can, you can vary what... <laughs> how much of the third dimension you're actually projecting. Do you see what I mean? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you can like tip it to see a bunch of it or you can tip it so the histograms are almost completely overlapping. Right. So what say you about the jo joy plot? Well, I just thought it was a really fun week because this is like the pinnacle of what we've built to. And it ties into like our analogy of like music and everything where this new tool like burst onto the scene and people were talking about it for whatever reason, possibly because of Rafa's Simply Statistics post. And somehow like it just got people like creating joy plots for everything. And I feel like this week I saw like a bunch of different cool creative analyses of things using joy plots. Um, my favorite was showing how movie times converge to 110 minutes over time. Oh, I saw. Yeah, I saw that. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, on that one, the Z axis was time. Um, right. Yeah. And that, that one was super cool because it just like, yeah, it, they really condensed down. Um, and, and some others too, like there was some with like Bayesian priors and some with um, like genomics applications. I think that was the one Rafa was looking at, but it was I was I was reflecting on the music analogy of like, oh, this is like, you know, when a new instrument pops onto the scene or like synthetic something, you know, like some new technique comes out and everyone like plays around with it and experiments with it. And then eventually there might be a standard, but there's also this fun, chaotic period like you were talking about where everyone's just like having fun and being creative and 
that's like a fun right like everyone's cool using it for everything yeah, yeah exactly and like and instead of instead of assuming that you know oh there's some solution here and there's some like you know the data science is a science it's like we're not at the part where we we're, we haven't converged on a solution and maybe we never will do you see what i mean right yeah yeah so i don't know that was my i enjoyed thinking about the music analogy with that because i was like oh yeah this is very much like in any art field when you get some new technique and every and it gets it becomes trendy and you know you look at you know music from a certain era and there were certain parts that were trendy and then they might go away or they might like stay around for all time so it's yeah and it's like and i think it just happens much faster now because like with twitter and the internet it's like all of a sudden it's like this is a wave of just stuff happening you know yeah totally yeah yeah it happens very very fast somewhat overwhelmingly fast (laughs) (laughs) if you weren't on twitter this week like you have no idea (laughs) <laughs> like what are these joy plots what are you even talking about yeah um you know i was i've always said that like we need an app that's basically it tells you why is everybody angry at so-and-so today you know, on twitter <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it's so and, hard uh, but it, so related to that it, it's kind of like well why is everyone posting these plots today you know <laughs> yeah yeah it is funny because you know, every once in a while when I talk to normal humans uh, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, like this, like Twitter, it's like, remember when you were a kid and your parents would have to explain references to you? Like, oh, yeah, that was a reference to this show. It's like now you have to do that on a daily basis to almost everyone who isn't actively on Twitter in that moment, you know? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. It's like it's like a minute to minute thing. <laughs> Do you, did you know why people were mad? Why people were happy with Delta this week? Oh, the Ann Coulter thing? Yeah. See, you're you're up yeah, on I, it. Yeah. I so. did. Yeah, I I got my finger on the pulse. So. <laughs> this was for everyone else. Ann Coulter was like complaining about Delta a ton and so so everyone likes Delta now cuz everyone hates Ann Coulter. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I think those people didn't need Delta to to, yeah. <laughs> to hate Ann Coulter, right? Yeah. Um, but um, yeah. Um, just I had one question for you in terms of like in terms of joy plots in general. Like, what do you think of them? Do you oh, have any opinions? I like them. I'm I'm Team Rafa. I hate violin plots. Like I. No. Do you hate them for the same reason he does? Or why do you hate violin plots? I, I've thought a lot about how to discuss this on the podcast, actually. Um, I just really dislike the association that it brings up in a business context. Okay. Does that make any sense to you? <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> <laughs> It's like uh, Georgia O'Keeffe paintings, like yeah, know. got it, <laughs> got it. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I was ninety nine percent sure that's what you're talking about, but um, I know. I hear you. It's awkward. It's like horror. Like I see them and I am like, I shudder with embarrassment at the thought of having to talk to people about them. Yeah, I, uh, I, yeah. I, I I hate them so much. I'm like embarrassed right now even talking about it. <laughs> All right, well, moving on then. <laughs> but it's like why like why do they exist? Like they don't even convey 
I, I mean, yeah, but to the rest of the content of Rafa's blog post where he associates them with Christmas ornaments, um, I like they don't like, why do you need to see the density twice? Like, it makes no sense. Well, if there were a violation of principle here, I think it's the ink to data ratio rate principle, right? Right. Yeah. But like people are obsessed with them. You see them a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I do see them a lot. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we won't now that we have joy plots. Hopefully. So, yeah. I feel like joy plots are just, I mean, I, yeah, I immensely, I, I definitely prefer histograms to box plots with the exception of if you're doing like very specific hypothesis testing and box plots could be helpful for like, you know, displaying the results. Like if you're interested in medians for whatever reason, then box plots can be nice. Well, I just think that um, box plots, you know, they inherently assume a kind of normal-ish, kind, roughly-ish data, right? Um, and uh, I think I think just times might have changed to the point where you know, I think of someone like Rafa, and I think he, very often he's dealing with uh, multimodal kind of like totally messed up data. Um, and I think uh, box plots are obviously just not good for that. And I think um, I just think that like in a world where the, you're collecting data and most of the data is fine, but like some of the data are just kind of like messed up because like uh, the instrument failed or whatever, like totally like messed up data. Like the box plot's great for that because it filters out outliers and like it focuses on the median and things like that, right? Uh, but in a world where like I think you're collecting data that might have like some underlying latent variable that's you know that's like separating in data into multiple groups and stuff like that um like you can't see that with the box plot like and it's just not enough detail for you so i think i i don't think there's anything in, i don't know my personal thing is that there's no nothing inherently wrong with box plots but i think they haven't evolved to to like uh, i think a world now where we're collecting very different kinds of data and we see a lot more heterogeneity and things like that yeah no i totally agree with that although caveat second question do you, would you, is your opinion about box plots different for like sampling distributions versus normal distributions? Or like, not, I shouldn't say normal, <laughs> versus like observational distributions. Do you see what I mean? No, in terms of, uh, I, I, was, I mean, in terms of like visualizing, um, I, I'm not sure I understand the question, I guess. If you, yeah, like in terms of visual, like if you're visualizing something that you can assume is normal because of the central limit theorem for whatever reason, then would you, would you prefer box plots in that context? You prefer them to what? Sorry. To histograms. Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, probably not. I think, um, I tend to use, I mean, I tend to use box plots when I've got like a lot of stuff that I need to line up, you know, um, uh, not when I just need like one thing, obviously, but I think, I think, but I think, I, I, I don't know. I think I tend to use box plots on like things that are like super raw data, you know? Um, yeah. And, and yeah. once I've started doing stuff, like I, I, I think they're, I, they tend, I don't know, I tend not to use them as much, I think. Yeah. No, I, that's the same for me. Although now that I think about it, how do you, if you visualize a confidence interval, how do you do that? Uh, you know, like one of those, uh, I don't even know what they're called, but like a dot and stick kind of thing. TIE fighter plot. Is that, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm cool with that. Okay. Yeah. TIE fighter. Yeah. It's not, yeah, I, that, I use that. It, I do not think that is the formal. 
definition but i i also use those so like and i feel like that's really clear it has the same spirit of a box plot where it's like okay there's really only three numbers you care about and that's the lower bound the upper bound and the estimate like the point estimate and so i will only show you those <laughs> and i will make it a continuous line you know to make it clear what's happening right but yeah but i mean so yeah so in that context so like if it's something where you know there's like like if it's something where it will be a normal distribution because of like the central limit theorem then i'm totally fine with a summary that's like a box plot yeah but then if there's not that assumption then i definitely want a histogram and i don't want a box plot i see what you're okay i finally understand what you're saying now <laughs> and i 100 percent agree <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it only took like five minutes, don't worry, so we're fine. No, I probably was not very clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. I agree. See, this is these are the things that data science is a science. That is an easy rule you can teach people. Okay. <laughs> All right. Should we, um, do you want to talk about briefly about explainable AI? I have a little follow-up. Yeah, yeah, sure, for sure. So, I mean, just the field in general, we've discussed it the last few podcasts of this idea of whether or not you should, the models that produce decisions that you might take action on, how much should you have to explain those? Yeah, or how, yeah, exactly. And really using the model that, that produced the prediction, right? I mean, I think, so in last in the last episode, we talked about how, like, you know, Peter Norvig was saying, of Google was saying that you know you should just take the output from the model and try to explain them using a different model, basically. Um, and uh, I kind of wrote a blog post, kind of you know, complaining about that. And um, and Alyssa Frazy, uh, who is a, I guess she is she a friend of the show, sure. <laughs> yeah, and friend of the show, and we, she and I both both had Jeff Leak as our advisor. Okay. So. I, don't, I don't. Does she listen to the show? I'm not sure if she does. <laughs> I'm not sure either. We'll see, we shall see. <laughs> anyway, so she tweeted at me um, a slide deck, I guess that um, that comes from from Stripe, which is where she works, um, about how they implement um, various machine learning models. And I think she gave Random Forest as like a example, and um, and how they will take individual predictions um, and kind of essentially invert the model to try to explain well what characteristics of the feature space kind of explain you know this this particular prediction and um i, I don't want i can't go it's hard to go into the details a lot kind of on the air like this but um i'll put a link to a paper that's referenced in that slide deck which is kind of interesting um that kind of goes to this idea of um in some ways it's kind of inverting so like a, a traditional prediction model you could say is estimating the probability of you know if, you, if you're predicting ones and zeros right what's the probability of a one given a certain you know set of features right so like the x space could be arbitrarily high dimension and you want to given the x's you want to predict a one or a zero right um and so uh, the these kind of ex these kind of explainable uh models basically invert that right like so given that you predicted a one you know what combination of features is kind of like what you would expect right um and so it's it, it's interesting the I, so the idea is kind of like you can part you can kind of like uh, so the, the the kind of simplest form of this is like the variable importance metric, which they use in random forest, where you basically you remove one variable and you see how much the prediction error decreases. Um, and so if it decreases a lot, then it must be an important variable. And if it doesn't decrease, then, you know, 
it's not important. Um, and right, yeah, right. And I think the then the you can generalize that to like have certain combinations of. I, I, my understanding is that you can generalize that idea instead, instead of looking at one variable, you'd have like combinations of variables um, that in tandem, and and that set of like that combination is what they call an explanation. Um, and then you could look at okay, well, given you know how how often does a given explanation uh, result in this predicted outcome or something like that um and so it's you know it's kind of like basically using a different model to do the explanation but um i can see what they mean that like, you can't use that model to then make the prediction um and so that it, you could justify having two different models one for making the prediction and one for kind of like explaining what happened um but it's not entirely clear to me that like what is the i mean there is a metric for like how often these explanations occur to like to, to evaluate whether like this really is an explanation as opposed to I don't know like I don't know how you you know measure the, the I guess the quality of the explanation is that, I mean so yeah well so an important context there is that Alyssa works on the fraud detection team at Stripe and so Stripe's this credit card payment processing in you know used for a lot of websites um, and so when her algorithm you know her team's algorithm detects fraud it can it like seriously impacts the person um like the the store because then they might shut down the store and stop like processing payments from them or whatever so there's there's like a major incentive from their perspective in terms of their customer relationship to you know have a very detailed discussion right away um and like and then they have to weigh like false positives and false negatives accordingly um and so, so yeah, I'm not sure that that, I think probably I'm ima imagining, and that might be in the, even in the slide deck, that the, the motivation for this is purely to like have a high quality like customer relationship conversation uh, when the person is like, like, what the heck? <laughs> Why is my shop tur like turned off right now? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to just for a little color, I think like the explanations that I was referring to are things like, you know, the card was used three times in the last minute and it was like in a country that is not where it's not like registered in or something like that, you know. Uh, so some combination of like kind of characteristics like that would would lead to uh, like a fraud being triggered, a fraud alarm being triggered or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So the explanations are like these kind of logical statements that are like combined, basically. Yeah, it was super cool. Alyssa actually gave that talk at um, Stitch Fix. Oh, okay. We have like a meetup from time to time. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I, it's super cool stuff and we should have her on here. Yeah. So I, that's all I had to say. I will, I'll link to the slide deck um, um, and uh, it's it's worth a read. So anyway, I, I thought it was a good point that she made. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, yay. All right. So uh, so I have a, a de novo topic that I wanted to bring up with you. Sure. That Go furthers for our theme of kind of comparing data analysis. You know, I thought that maybe we need to have another segment that's like Roger's analogy corner. <laughs> I like that. Wait, I want one too, though. <laughs> you want a segment? We can each have an analogy corner. Oh, I see. No, yeah. Right. Like, I, we each have different analogy corners. Yeah. <laughs> so it won't be Roger. It'll just be analogy corner. Okay. I like that. So I was thinking about writing, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering, 
Why are you laughing already? <laughs> Just because it's like, it's not what every writer says. Like, I'm like thinking about writing my great American novel. <laughs> no, like, I'm not day. doing that. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so thinking about writing, so, go on. Let me ask you, is it possible to be a great writer without having written anything that anyone had really read? <laughs> so like, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just say that, like, suppose, um, suppose I, like, let's suppose you're a writer, okay? <laughs> well, you are a writer, but let's suppose you are a writer. And um, I say, I want you to write a book that follows this story. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you decide that the story is horrible. Like it's a horrible story. It's so boring or whatever. You know, it's a horrible story. But mm-hmm. you need the money, so you're like, whatever. I'll do the job. All right. And so you write the story. Um, and it's a horrible. You know, the plot is horrible. All right. But is it possible to still say that you're a great writer? Okay. And yeah. So like because like. So like. Can I de- identify from the words on the page that like, okay, this person is an excellent craftsperson, right? Like they know how to put words on a page. It's just that the story they were given was like, was dumb. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. You can't, you think you and can do that? With a, with the caveat that I feel like you see actors do this in movies where it's like, oh yeah, they worked really hard with the script they had. Right, and they and they and they yeah they squeezed as much out of it that they could, and so and you could separate the fact that this actor is great, but he he or she was put in a terrible movie. Exactly. Yeah. And and so yeah okay so I kind of thought that was the case right there are like I think because not every writer is in control complete control of what they do right I'm maybe most writers are not in complete control right and so um, but it's possible to recognize the kind of like the the craft of good writing separate from uh you know you know how you feel about the whole thing right um and i was thinking about like uh so i was thinking about in with the screenwriting um so i listened to this podcast called script notes where they talk about screenwriting and um there's kind of like three levels that they talk about in terms of like how good a screenwriter is and the the bottom level is like you write screenplays but like anybody can do that so no big deal um the next level is you got a movie made, right? Like a movie was made from one of your screenplays, right? But there's not like there's not like a judgment of whether the movie was good or not, right? It's just a, it's just well, it was good enough to get made, <laughs> right? And then the next level is like, did people like the movie, right? Like, was it a good movie, right? And 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 I think the one of, and I think a lot of the focus is on like, can you get a movie made? Because really, that's like that's how you make a living as a writer is getting movies made, right? Um, and whether a movie is good or not depends on many, 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 many other factors that are out of the writer's control, right? Right. And so... Yeah, completely. Right. Yeah. Like there's a director, there's an editor, there's all kinds of garbage that probably happens after the screenplay is done, right? And so... Um, uh, and I was wondering if there's like a similar kind of thing. Like, is it possible to say this person's a great data analyst, but like the paper they wrote, the paper that resulted from the analysis was horrible? <laughs> <laughs> I... I, I Interesting. Because, okay, I feel like this gets into the inherent, implicit, but never explicitly described policing factor in analysis, where you're expected to be someone who, like, pulls the brakes if it is fundamentally a bad problem, 
Okay. Do you see what I mean? Versus, and so like if you spun this amazing narrative out of nothing, that would be something, you could do that using skilled analysis techniques, but it would still be a bad analysis if you're like misleading people from like the capital T truth. And so... I feel like there's a difference there. Do you see what I mean? Well, well, I mean, suppose you're in a situation where the anal- where I, I have, let's say I have some data that I've collected for a given question. And let's say the question is not a good one, <laughs> just for the sake of argument, right? Um, but I give you the I say, here's the data. I need you to like do fit these kinds of models and these models and these tests. And I need you to produce this kind of output, right? Uh, um, so that's a little bit prescriptive. But... The point is that you could do that, right? In principle, you could do that. Whether it's a good idea is debatable, but you could do those things. You could produce a report. You could it could be reproducible and all those things. And then I and then I take that from you, and then we never talk again. And, and I go publish a paper, um, and maybe and the paper's horrible, right? But so I, you would not. Would you be at fault? I mean, would you? You know, how much burden do you bear on that? I think you should bear a lot of the burden. Okay. Because. <laughs> As, as I feel like people would know from listening, I am pro, like, I am pro analyst as watchdog, even though it can be horrible. <laughs> even though it can be, like, really pedantic and can make your relationship with the team bad. But I think, I think this gets almost to that, like, professional ethics thing of you do have a duty as someone who under someone who can do great evil with analysis to not do that do you see what i mean uh wait if people someone can do great evil and not do what sorry so i i do believe that prescriptive like please make these plots and no discussion is bad and not just because it's not fun for the analyst but because it's bad science right and and so i feel like that's the difference in this analogy between like you can have a good actor, you can have a good performance even if it's a bad script or a good script with a bad performance. But there's like the capital T truth there is much more subjective about like the emotional truth or whatever and like what you're trying to convey. And there's like infinite things you're trying to convey. Whereas at least the premise of most data analyses is that you're trying to convey some truth about our world <laughs> and this is how you're getting there. And so having someone prescribe it for you and you creating it and not questioning if it's getting at that goal is in my mind not doing good analysis, even if you use very skilled techniques and write a very like fancy technically report and like you develop the analysis well. So like I think the introduction of like science science into that analysis I think that the difference between movies and data analysis is the introduction of science and that sort of social contract that science is about seeking truth in the universe. Yeah, I I, I think I agree with you. I, I at least that's my gut says that's the case and I think um, like I, I was thinking of other like areas like you know you can have a great doctor but patients still die for example right um, or you could have a great lawyer but people still go to jail you know um, and, and I think but even still I think you're right like even though those are more like the movie example than they are I think like the data analysis example um, because there is like an underlying truth that like doesn't care about you or me or anybody else right 
Right. Well, I mean, I feel like we should bring like a like a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You know, I, I do think this gets into like science the like we're living in this like scientific era and maybe we're at the end of it. <laughs> like I feel like the events of last year and this year like signal that we might be at the end of that era. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I agree with that, but <laughs> <laughs> But like there are some people I feel like this year showed that there's some people who are like not concerned with discovering truth. Like science is a mechanism yeah. for discovering. No, I, 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 yeah, that's true. But, uh, um, well, I think, I, yeah, and like actually, probably most of human history was that. Yeah, way. you yeah. see what I mean. Um, I, my only thing is that, um, the idea that like the science and the analysis have to be tightly coupled, um, it's definitely something I think I agree with. But it's bad news for I think the data science industry, broadly speaking. Um, because I think a lot of like the business and I don't mean like companies that use data science. I mean like companies that are trying to sell data science, you know, I think a lot of the business is centered around the idea that those things can be separated. Yeah. The, the good data science and the good, no, wait, explain that to me. But like, I can give you an analysis that is applicable to a wide range of problems. Yes. And and it's and the analysis is is good without really considering what the problem is, basically. Yes. I like this so much because this is like my screed against BI software generally, I feel <laughs> like. Um, cuz like I mean a, a while back we talked about a while back we talked about uh, like Palantir, right? Um yeah. and um and I think that's their what's the third I think on the uh, uh on its face that's kind of like what their model is like we sell data science but in order to separate data science that from like just your average consulting company you know you have to believe that the the problem and the analysis can be separated um yes yeah yeah and i and this is i feel like this gets at why i feel like my cat my catchphrase for this is like you cannot scale data science in a company with tools alone you have to like you fundamentally have to hire people. Right. And like, Which, no, and you, it can't just be consultants and software and process. Like it, like you, you will never truly scale data science without just like hiring more people. Well, and I think some people would argue that means it's not scalable. <laughs> yeah, it's not, but that's good for us. Like, I think that's good for the field because it's it absolutely good for hire. us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or if, if it's scalable, it has to, you have to like f- focus on automating something else. Like I don't know like what that would be, but uh, you know you have to look at the problem in a different way. Yeah, and you have to you have to make data scientists efficient at what they do without trying to automate away what they do, which is like the whole DevOps thing, where it's like, oh yeah, you have this analysis developer person who's building tooling and process and communicating about how to do the job efficiently. And you create a culture within a company where people are rewarded for doing that. And that's how you uh, scale isn't even the right word then. Yeah, that's how you that's how you have a healthy, thriving data science org. Although, well, the one thing I was going to say is that I think the analogy isn't quite so when you talked about a good movie, we never really rigorously define that. That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of ways you could you could say like whether it makes money or whether it wins awards. You know, there's a couple of things, I guess. 
Yeah. But I think if you, so it, like going back to philosophy, if you, if you define good as speaking some sort of like emotional truth about the human experience. <laughs> okay. Which like can't really measure that. And maybe that's what critics try to do. And maybe, you know, success is a noisy measurement of that. Right. But maybe uh-huh. not, because maybe it's a really painful emotional truth that people don't want to see, so they don't right. go. Right. Um, and and so then I think it is a little bit closer to, like, the, the writer has to convey that. And if they have a bad script, you will never accomplish being a good movie, even if the actor tries really hard. All right. I think that's good. That's a good analogy corner. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I think it's like I mean at the like I've been thinking a lot about complexity of business and complexity of problems recently cuz like Stitch Fix is a really complex business. Um even compared to Etsy that was complex because you had buyers and sellers and so there was like a marketplace dynamic and that made that made it complex within the company. And then this is like even more complex cuz you have like, you know, like you have the stylists and you have customers and you have like inventory and you have like the trying to make people more efficient at their jobs by developing data science things like it's it's just like a very complex situation and so i think i i don't know that i have more thoughts about it than some situations are just inherently very complex and i think what I've come to realize through this podcast is that data science like fundamentally is that because of this intersection of like narrative and storytelling, but then also this like truth aspect of it and the creative aspect of it. You know, there's just like a lot going on that is never going to be simplified away. Yeah, I um I'm like reaching that conclusion too, and I'm I'm not sure I what to think about it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to feel think, about it. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, the first step is defining the problem. You know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel good about it because it's fun to work in a complex field. I don't know. I like I even though sometimes you know I wish I like worked on like oh it's just simple and we do this and that number goes up and you know but. It's, I don't know, grappling with, I feel like describing, wrapping head around complexity is in itself like a fun task. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah. Um, so maybe in, in the last few minutes, do you want to do a little follow-up? Sure. Um, unless you had another topic you wanted to uh, hit on. No, I mean, we could get into the Google Calendar invite discussion, but we can leave that for... Well, we'll, we'll see if we have time for that. I just want to do a little follow-up. So um, we had two things. One, so the easy, it was an easy one. So Peter Petto, I'm going to say, on Twitter, uh, had a question about what podcast data do we get? Um, downloads, watched, skips, etc. And so this is an interesting question for two reasons. One is that we switched platforms. The other one is that Apple, I don't know if you saw this, they recently announced like a bunch of changes to the, the way that they're going to... Um, uh, kind of present podcasts. So they have Apple obviously runs the the biggest directory uh, of podcasts, and they've traditionally not given anyone any data about what happens to podcasts. Um, 
And so, but they just announced at WWDC that they're going to give information about downloads, about skipping, and about like, and how much, how, how long people watch, uh, sorry, how long people listen, and all, and kind of that kind of tracking information. Um, so I think, and so they're going to, they're going to make that available through their like iTunes connect interface. And so, so we'll start to get that information at some point. I don't know when, um, but as of yet, all, basically all we know is whether you downloaded the audio file or not. (laughs) Um, Oh, I didn't even know we knew that. Yeah, we know that because the audio file is hosted. We host the audio file. So, um, we know when someone hits it. Um, you mean on SoundCloud? Oh, we don't know that we don't. Yeah, we don't know if you personally, uh, you know, we know it, we know when the file is downloaded. <laughs> you know, we don't know if like you downloaded it, right? So, um, can we clarify? Do you really mean download it? Like, we know if we definitely know if you've streamed it on SoundCloud because like everyone can see that. It's just the number on the bottom. Yes. Um, are you talking about iTunes? We know if someone downloaded from iTunes. You don't download from iTunes, right? If if because iTunes doesn't host the file, so when someone subscribes to the podcast, if they listen to it, they download it from right now from SoundCloud. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. I did not know that. <laughs> so that display just yeah displays how little I know about this one. <laughs> well, you know, you're not involved in the operations, so it's not your business. I'm not. Um, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so the number that you see next to each episode that 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 is like streams and downloads all combined. You know. Okay. So right now, that's all we have. We have like, there's some like analytics that we get on SoundCloud or in Libsyn, you know, where it's like they they have some geography. They know what technology, you know, what podcast player you're using. Um, there, there's some information about. Um, there's some yeah, some basic geographic information, but I think that's that's it. So it's not a lot of information about how people listen to the podcast, though. Um, it's not so important for us. It's more important for the podcast that do advertising. They want to know people skip, skipping the ads and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. The other one is a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit longer. So Chris uh, emailed us. He said he's working in a, in a department where he's like the only person who does data science. And he's trying to convince the people in his department um, that, um, that they should use, they should be more kind of like, they should use data science more, you know, in their, I think it's like a finance type of department. Um, and, and so he's worried, he's wondering how you kind of convince people that like, this is a good idea, which is, I think is an interesting question because it's like, it's the fundamental question that, you know, we face all the time, I think, which is like, how do you convince someone who doesn't, who isn't using data that like, it's a good idea? <laughs> we should, we should dedicate more. Yeah. I feel like this should be a to be continued situation because it it does occur to me now that i don't think we've ever directly addressed this topic yeah we definitely haven't and i have thought about it more concretely a as i've gotten older and more senior in my career and b with the whole opinionated analysis development like like the idea of like how to win friends and influence people you know like like if i want to be a thought leader how do i you know make people think what i think and um it yeah i don't think there's a straightforward answer to that and i think it comes down to probably a lot more soft skills than you would like Yeah, that's yeah. sort of my thought immediately. Yeah, and so I, 
I'll maybe we'll yeah. pause this and I think this will be actually this is a good topic for a future episode because actually I have been through a little bit of stuff because like because we do this I do some consulting on the side and we've talked a lot about how you kind of sell this kind of service to people who don't necessarily think that they need it and so um, yeah yeah anyway so we can t- we can maybe go into, so we'll hold that and we'll go into greater depth in a future episode yeah yeah good um, teaser for yeah. for the long haul people have to go through till fresh <laughs> content yeah all right um i think that's it for the follow-up i know i'm trying to what were oh do you want to end we could end with talking about yan lacoon mad about google playlists <laughs> yeah i do want to talk about that because uh well what do you want to describe it yeah. So Jan LeCun is this, um, oh, he's like the head of some fancy AI department at Facebook in New York. And I follow him on Facebook. And he had like the most epic, like angry post about Google playlists for classical music, like auto-generated playlists. Um, and it was so, and I even like, I'm trying to dip my toes in the classical world, classical music world, as you know. Um, and like, but it was like, he was like so mad that these different conductors were like, like who would possibly like mix these conductors together, together. And this is crazy. But like, I'm sure to most people reading that it was like, I don't know, like, <laughs> like those all look like classical music composers to me. That right. seems fine. Yeah. Well, so uh, you probably can't post the the actual thing, right? <laughs> that he I wrote. Know, it I know it's public. Oh, it's yeah, public. Okay, it so public. we can put the yeah. So yeah. the issue, I think, more specifically, was that he was saying that, um, um, you know, the, I guess the the station, the station or playlist or whatever they call it, it was titled Mazorsky radio or something like that right and so Mazorsky is a Russian composer and um he's got it's not the most famous composer but he's got a few popular works and I think the idea with this playlist is that there would be music that's kind of related to Mazorsky right who was like a, a romantic kind of 1800 era you know composer right and he's complaining that there's like on this playlist there's like American music, there's European, there's like this classical, there's Baroque, there's like 20th century. It's like, it's all, it's like, it's just like, it's just like a grab bag of classical music. And it's not related. It's like, like, if the playlists were called classical music, then I could see that. But he was, I think his complaint was that it, it was way more specific than that. And yet the selections on the playlist were not specific at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's like a legit complaint, you know. I mean, I think his expectations were way too high. Let's be clear. They were super high. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think he taps into a general complaint that I have, which is that all of these services, Apple Music, you know, Google, I, I've never, all these services are just bad with classical music. It's just. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, I even chimed in on this thread about, because someone was like, Spotify is way better. And I was like, well, but Spotify, usually the tracks are broken into the movements. So then if you have a randomly generated playlist, it probably won't be all four movements of something in a row. And then it's like, you don't want to just listen to, I don't know. I would rather listen to the whole symphony and not just like the second movement of it. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, like even on like iTunes, it took a long time for them to figure out how to like group things together, <laughs> you know, um, like group like four movements of a symphony together. And so um, 
it's it's never i mean i could understand why this is true like there aren't that many people who listen to this music and so it's not a high priority at any company i think but so i kind of get his frustration but um it was amusing though because like these are if these are like auto-generated playlists right then these are based on some you know machine learning algorithm um yeah so i actually think there's a business opportunity here if we have any followers who are you know have fire in their belly for a startup because <laughs> One thing about classical music, yeah. Well, classical music, the people who listen to it are probably a pretty pretty spendy group, if you will. I think, yeah, all, I think all 10 of them would love it. <laughs> but they would also pay like $100 for it. You know, and like you could, you could probably, if you built an app that really nailed this problem, it would be, you know, very valuable to the people who use it. And those people probably have you know, big wallets. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I feel like the classical music uh, listenership maybe differs a little bit from the general music listenership in that I, I, I don't know... I don't know how much a problem... Well, I don't, maybe... Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I want to know how much a problem discovery is. Um, mm -hmm. wh whereas, like, with, like, popular music, first of all, there's a lot of it. Second of all, it's, like, coming out every day. Um, right. There's new stuff coming out every day, and it's hard for I think someone like me, I know from experience, to like figure out well what's the latest and what's good and what's not. Um, yeah. Whereas classical yeah. music, I don't think has quite the velocity <laughs> as everything else. <laughs> I will actually disagree with you though that as someone who's coming into it new, and I played piano growing up, but I was never you know, you're you're far more expert than me. It is baffling to try to figure out classical music as a newbie. And I mean, maybe it's like, I think the sweet spot's probably like, you know, radio or a podcast, which you even pointed out that like the show notes podcast, um, line notes, what was it called? Sticky notes. notes. Sticky <laughs> yeah. notes, yeah. Um, yeah, like, like I think discovery is hard for classical music because it's really more education than discovery. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. And so um, if you built an app that like took you through the discovery journey and then and, like would meet you where you are, <laughs> like maybe you have really specific needs or maybe you're like, I'm curious about classical music. But then also now that I'm saying this, like there's a lot of radio stations that do a really good job of this. Right. Yeah. But um, who listens to radio now? Right. I know. I know. <laughs> but classical um, music listeners probably. So, yeah. I just think the issue yeah. here, I think I, t I think there is room for it. Like, I would love to have an app like this or whatever, but I just think there's no money to be made. As, so. I that, See, that's the thing. I actually disagree. Sometimes I feel like the best apps are those really niche ones that, like, there was um, Ravelry, the social network for knitters. Uh -huh. And that's, like, a very success. It's, like, so when you look at it, it is not a high-tech situation. But... It's like a really people are really into it because it's like fits their needs really specifically. I feel that way about Goodreads too, where it's just like it's kind of perfect for what you need, which is like you want to be able to store lists of books and write, you know, write a review when you're done that you feel smart and you're like can play like New York Times book critic for ten minutes in your apartment. <laughs> and then like you know, it's like perfect for that. So Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, it makes sense that I think if an, if something like this were created, the and if it were well done, like the people who used it would would like really really love it, 
right? Yeah, um, and you could like if you could track like, oh, I saw this live in this venue with this soloist. You know, like it, I feel like it could actually be pretty valuable. All right. Well, we're just giving away ideas left and right here. I know. Yeah. Please, <laughs> please, uh, please hire us as advisors. You know. <laughs> all right. If you do um, this. <laughs> all right. So I think. Um, I think we'll, you want to just end it? I think we'll have to end it there because I've got to go soon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so um, anyway, so I, and we will be back in, well, we'll so we'll, we'll rebroadcast some older episodes, but we'll be back in a few weeks, I think. It won't be too long. Cool. Safe travels. <laughs>